the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Sideline Sanity with me, Michelle Tafoya, sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. There has never been a better time to invest in precious metals. Go to LegacyPMInvestments.com. LegacyPMInvestments.com. When was the last time you said to yourself, haste makes waste? Uh, I remember one time I broke my ankle because I was trying to get too quickly from one place to another. And that thing goes through your head. And my dad always told me, haste makes waste. It's so true. When you rush and you do things fast, faster than they need to be done, really, if you just slow down, you can avoid so many mistakes. So how would you want to, you know, react if you found out that, that some of that Operation Warp Speed, which had the best intentions behind it, maybe there was some haste involved and now we're experiencing the waste. So in other words, in order to get the vaccine for COVID-19 developed quickly, it needed to go through trials, human trials. And these trials had to be done precisely right. And that's not a super easy thing to do. It requires organization and people watching over it and making sure that whether it's double-blinded or single-blinded, all of these things, it has to be done accurately in order to make sure that your trials are telling you what they think they're telling you. In other words, you've got to check your work. You've got to check your work before you turn it over to someone and say, hey, this this vaccine trial, this is effective. It works. We know it because we did it this way. Well, you may have heard this story. There's a woman named Brooke Jackson who was involved in one such trial. And very quickly, she saw some haste, some mistakes, some shoddiness. And she brought it to the attention of the company. Then they didn't do anything. She brought it to the attention of the FDA. Does Pfizer know about this? This was a Pfizer clinical trial. Do they know? Yeah, they know. They know that she made these accusations. There's a lawsuit involved. Where does it all stand now? Now that we've seen that there are vaccine injuries, that maybe the vaccines weren't as effective as everybody claimed they were. Brooke Jackson is going to join us to tell her story and give us an update on this lawsuit and what Pfizer has said to her, if anything, what the FDA has said to her, if anything. And does she have a job anymore? That's coming up. For nearly three decades, she's reported the action from the sidelines. She started very young. She's covered the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and the college football and basketball national championships. And now, during these insane times in our world, Michelle Tafoya thinks we need a serious dose of sanity. This is Sideline Sanity with your host, one of the sanest people on planet Earth, Michelle Tafoya. So drug manufacturers have to test their products before they administer them or sell them or put them on the market for one and all to use. 
So Pfizer and Moderna and J&J were the three companies racing to try to create a vaccine against COVID-19 back in 2020. We all remember Operation Warp Speed. Pfizer was the first to come to market with their vaccine. And being able to do that required trials of the vaccine with human beings. These are pivotal trials. These are important to make sure that the vaccine is effective and safe, or as we heard, safe and effective, (laughs) emphasis on safe. Brooke Jackson is with us. She was one of the people overseeing these pivotal trials with a company in Dallas-Fort Worth, and she's in the middle of some really interesting times in her life. Brooke, thanks for joining us. I know you are a seasoned professional at this kind of work. And so you entered this company that was about to conduct these pivotal trials, stage three trials, right, of the the vaccine for Pfizer? Yes, thank you for having me, Michelle. So I I started at a company called Ventavia Research Group in September of 2020. I joined that company with over, over, excuse me, excuse me, 20 years of experience in the conduct of clinical trials at the site level. So this is where the patients were recruited to um, join the studies where we would follow their progress in the trial after their vaccine one and vaccine two. So, So in other words, if I'm, if I'm volunteering to go through a clinical trial, I go to a site and this is where this company and you are overseeing this trial and I take the vaccine. I'm saying I'll, I'll give it a try. And then you follow up with each individual to see how it's affected them, whether or not it's effective, how their body reacts. Is that fair? Exactly. Exactly. Right. So as soon as that patient signs informed consent, we follow them from that moment through the end of the trial, their journey through the study. We, we follow so closely. Um, We document everything from their medical history to their surgical history, what medicines they're on, how they feel after the vaccine. um, And and again, through, through, through the end of their participation. And this was, as you call it, the pivotal stage three, this was the final trial before this thing could get okayed by the FDA. Is that is that accurate? It is, yes. So, okay. In total, Pfizer was looking to enroll approximately 44,000 people. And this phase of the trial really determine, determines the, the product's safety and efficacy. Okay. And this is where this company, and you are overseeing these trials in two of the sites in the Dallas-Fort Worth uh, uh, area. And what is your first indication that Something didn't seem right. Again, you have 20 years experience in this field. What what did you first notice that raised a red flag for you? I would I would say it would, it would have to be the informed consent process itself. So when I asked to shadow one of the research coordinators just to get an idea of how the clinic flowed and really to since I'd read our standard operating procedures, I wanted to just make sure that we were following those especially with the informed consent process. It's not a, a, it is a process. It's just that it's not for in layman's terms. If Mm -hmm. I'm coming in there and I'm signing informed consent, what is that just for, for the general public's knowledge? What does that mean? The informed consent is for, for, and for this particular study, it was a 30 page document 
that went over the protocol, the design of the study, the risks, the benefits that were associated with the vaccine, the patient's responsibilities when they had to come back to the clinic, what happens if you were injured by this product, um, how do I use the diary that's going to be you know, recording symptoms. So it's really just a, a, an overview of what their participation is going to look like. If they're, and, if, once, and once I sign that informed consent, I'm saying, okay, I've read this, I've been informed, and I consent to be part of this study. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So you're, you're following this, this, you're shadowing one of these people and you're going through the informed consent process. And what, what jumped out at you? How quickly that informed can process that informed consent process happened. It wasn't a, a thorough review of the informed consent. It was a sign here, date here, let's get you injected. And that really, I mean, I had to step in and take over this informed consent. And it ended up taking myself, the coordinator, and the patient a little over an hour to complete that process. There were and questions. is that typical? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yes. But, you know, thinking back to um, when this trial was, was running, people were interested in participating. They wanted to do their part. They wanted to help bring... Uh, um, a product to the market that could potentially end this pandemic and get everybody back to normal. So we had one thing that Ventavia did very well was market their clinical trials. <clears throat> so we, we had no problem enrolling in the study quickly. And that's exactly what Pfizer wanted. They, they were in a race to be number one and we were in a great position to help them cross that finish line. So, so, so you're shadowing this person and mm -hmm. you realize, yeah, I got to step in here and make sure this is done properly. So you, I think then you would, were you left with the assumption that had you not stepped in, um, this would, this kind of thing would have been repeated that. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I had no, I had no doubt that if I would not have stepped in, it would have been just sign a date here and let's get you into an exam room and start the, the um, process, you know, collection right. of the data, let's get you injected so you can leave and we can bring that next patient into the exam room. So we and, can churn them through and get this done quickly and help Pfizer get this thing to market. Absolutely, yes. Okay. And so that, that, that was really the first thing that I saw. Ventavia had been enrolling in the clinical trial from the end of July of 2020 through when, when I was there in, in September of 2020, and approximately 1,500 patients had signed informed consent. So by when then. I, by then, yes. So that was a, 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 the number one red flag on day one, just that process. But it was also a teaching moment for, for me and that research coordinator to, right. you know, for me to explain to her to to let her know, hey, you're not following one, our standard operating procedures. There are good clinical practices that you, you've you known for as long as you've been doing research. This is not how it's done. And so that, that training with her was documented and I moved on to, um, you know, on with my day and really just, it, it was something every single day, multiple findings that I had as a, as a trained clinical trial auditor when I'm going through the data that's being collected on each individual patient, where I'm finding 
I'm finding misconduct. Eventually I learned that, that I could confidently say that they were fabricating data, they were falsifying data, and that it, it's very simple why. We were severely okay. understaffed. Ah, okay. That, that okay. was a problem. So this is the beginning of a number of red flags. We're gonna continue this conversation in just a second. Wow, these are these are crazy times and money is a, a big thing on everyone's mind. Whether you're buying gas, whether you're paying your energy bill. Oh my gosh, I just got our energy bill here at the house. We're using less, but our bill was higher, 15% higher. It was quite a shock. So these are the day-to-day things you have to deal with and then there are the long-term things you're thinking about, your retirement, your savings, you know, how are you going to pay for your kids college, all those long-term planning things. Well, I would encourage you to incorporate some precious metals into your portfolio. And the only company I trust when investing in gold and silver is Legacy Precious Metals. They're at LegacyPMInvestments.com. And I would encourage you to maybe look into this quickly. We've got inflation all over the place. We've got instability all over the world. We were talking about the, the war between Russia and Ukraine, and now we've got this instability in Iran as well. Instability is the word of the day. That's how we feel. So gold and silver can provide some stability to your long-term planning. It's a wonderful long play when you're looking at your finances. And I would do it quick. Remember 2008? The folks who invested in gold saw huge gains while others lost their retirements. So let me direct you to Legacy Precious Metals. You can call them and speak to an IRA expert. The number is 866-528-1903, 866-528-1903. Or again, the website, and you can download their free investor's guide at the website, LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. All right, Brooke, so you talked about multiple red flags. You continued to see things, and you think that they were falsifying data. How so? Well, it was documented even prior to me starting at Ventavia as I'm going through old emails that I was eventually copied on because it was more of a a running list of our daily meetings. So I'm looking back in this email chain from as, as far back as August where two of the clinical researchers that were still employed and still working on the trial were disciplined through HR for for fabricating and falsifying data. 
And so, go ahead. How did they do that? Like, what did they do? Well, they, again, they were, they were in such a hurry. We had five exam rooms. It was a very small clinic within a pavilion that, um, you know, we, we just didn't have the room, the space and the staff where we had five assistants or researchers working on the trial. We needed triple that number. The number of patients that we were enrolling on a daily basis, we, we just could not keep up with the data collection that was required of Pfizer's own protocol. And that, that, that's, that's where I saw um, or, or determined the root cause of that was because we were understaffed and because Ventavia hired people that were working beyond their scope no medical training at all. We had employees that young and who, who, when I'm reviewing their resume or their CV, am finding that they only have retail experience as a lead cashier and as a restaurant worker, the person that was responsible for preparing the vaccine and injecting the vaccine at one of my sites was a restaurant, a taqueria worker. Nothing wrong with that, except that no. they didn't have experience for the job that you exactly. were hired, exactly. that you had hired them to do, that Ventavia had hired them to do. Mm-hmm. So let's, uh, these are some serious red flags. And yes. you know that you're involved in a research trial that it, the world is waiting for, right? The, the, not just the United States, not just Pfizer, the world is hoping and praying for a vaccine that will help us through this pandemic. It's a hundred year pandemic. What did you do when you, when these red flags started to add up, how did you respond? Well, it took me, it took me, I would say probably a week, week and a half of taking my findings to, to my leaders on a daily basis for me to realize that Ventavia was not interested in making sure that this data was sound. Um, like you mentioned, this, this vaccine was planned for the world. And I knew how important the data integrity was. I knew how important it was to ensure that, you know, um, that it was safe and that it was effective. And that's determined by the data that's collected from the site level. So patient information, patient data, adverse events, all of that comes from sites like mine. And it, it made me stop and, and think to myself, if this is happening at Ventavia, where else is this, where else is this happening? It's being rushed. Pfizer knows what Ventavia is doing. They're emailing daily, asking for updates, for reports. Why is this adverse event not being followed up on? Why are patients contacting us directly because they can't get a hold of your site? The voicemail boxes are full. What is going on? When I realized that Ventavia was just interested in lining their pocket, that Pfizer was allowing this to occur because they wanted to be first to market, I thought, okay, I, I, I have to take this information that I have to the FDA. It's that serious. I knew because, because taking it to, to Ventavia wasn't because I know you did meet with someone at Ventavia, right? And and sort oh, of oh yes, yeah, every and, morning, and, every morning we discussed this. 
I recorded conversations with them when, when, when I was finding this and I realized they, they weren't doing what they were supposed to do and, and um, actually um, destroying evidence. So, so I was documenting all of this and in, and on the 25th of September of 2020, I went directly to the FDA. I called their hotline and was directed to file a complaint online. And I did that in, in the morning and about six and a half hours later, I, I lost my job. I was fired, I was terminated effective immediately and under the pretext that I was not a good fit for Ventavia. Not a good fit. Mm -hmm. Did you ever hear directly back from the FDA? I did, yes. Uh, about what, what four days there? later, I spoke to okay. an inspector for a little over an hour, and I went over my complaint in detail. When I, I think back to that email, it, it starts out, it is without hesitation that I am informing you of patient safety concerns. And I listed and, and outlined 14 things that were on my mind just at the moment. There was more, but the lack of testing and patients that were symptomatic, that went to the very heart of Pfizer's endpoints in the design of the trial, the failures in reporting serious adverse events. We had so many reports of adverse events. Again, we just could not keep up for months at one of my sites and a little over a month at another, the temperature of the product, it was not being stored properly. So we don't know if that product was stable. If you remember back in, in very early, the storage was super cold, ultra cold, mm -hmm. minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit. We were not storing the vaccine at its appropriate temperature. I don't know, I'm not a scientist. I don't know what that did to the mRNA within these vials. Um, did it make it less effective? Did it cause more harms? I don't know. Hopefully this has been looked into um, by Pfizer, but I know that when the emergency use authorization was given in December of 2020 for 16 and older, that the clinical trial site had not been audited by the FDA even with the knowledge of everything that I've laid out, things that were material to the approval of this vaccine. A lot of what I outlined is just sloppy research, but that was really to paint a picture of how Ventavia was handling these clinical trials and why. And again, if, if Ventavia was handling mishandling clinical trials, there's nothing to prove that other clinical trials were being or were not being mishandled. We just don't know. You were the lone whistleblower. So you hear back from the FDA. You talk to him for an hour. You go over in detail what you're, what you observed, what, why you think this was shoddy, et cetera. And, and then what, what, what did they say to you? What was their reaction? What was the response? I, I feel like when I was speaking to the inspector, she, she was very attentive. She asked questions and very sympathetic to my termination, but made it very clear that there would be no follow-up, that I would not know the result of any action that was taken from my complaint. And that, that I thought that was fair, 
But I, Michelle, had no doubt that that the FDA would at least take my allegations seriously and, and walk into Ventavia. You know, I, I am a certified auditor, but there are teams that inspect clinical trial sites. Is that they're, they're experts. They know what to look for. And I'm sure that they would have found more besides everything that, that I've laid out in what, what now has eventually you know, become my lawsuit <clears throat> against Pfizer. And you know for a fact that when the emergency use authorization was given in December of 2020, again, this is months after you were terminated and, and after you filed this complaint with the FDA, the, at that point, the FDA had not gone into Ventavia and looked at your complaints? Yes, ma'am. They have not. They, they never walked in. They never did anything with my complaint. There were, so now, <clears throat> sorry, there were 153 clinical trial sites that were participating in, in this trial. And prior to the emergency use authorization being granted, there were six clinical trial sites that were inspected by the FDA. That's a very small percentage. Yes. Let's just put it that way. That's a very small percentage. That's not even a quarter. It's not even close. <laughs> no. um, I, I'll, I could do the quick math, but I can't. Let's so. not. <laughs> but, but six out of 153 is a very small fraction. And I think uh, now, yeah, go ahead. I think what's important, Michelle, is, is for your audience to understand, and this is on FDA's own website, that the data that we collect at the clinical trial sites is collected on source documents. This is the first place where the clinical trial data is recorded, whether that's high weight, blood pressure, physical exam. That data from those source documents is then manually entered into Pfizer's database. The final report is what Pfizer gives to the FDA. The FDA never sees the data that's actually collected at the site. They only see what Pfizer gives them. They tell you on their own on their own website. We rely on the data from the pharmaceutical sponsor to determine a product's safety and efficacy. All right, Brooke. So you went to Ventavia directly they fired you after they found out you went to the FDA. Did you ever go directly to Pfizer? I did, yes. I went to Pfizer directly several times throughout my 18 days of employment, although I did that anonymously, and I wasn't ever able to reach somebody at Pfizer until the day after I was fired. I still remained anonymous, but I spoke to a Pfizer liaison directly that was involved with my clinical trial sites. And without saying my name, without using my own cell phone number, and without giving away too much information, I, I told him everything. He knew everything. So, yes. And why was it important that he didn't know who you were? Because I was considering at, at that point, because I knew I'd been terminated wrongfully, uh, considering you know, pursuing uh, legal action. So I just didn't want that to interfere with a potential lawsuit that I had at the state level. So, you know, a, a wrongful termination. So you, you talk, you have this conversation over the phone with Pfizer. How did you assess their re response to what you were saying? They were very reluctant. He was very reluctant to speak to me. He actually wanted to end the conversation. And I told him, I said, listen, this is, this is just so important. This is your job. You know, 
that you've been trying to, to get to these clinical trial sites, and they've been preventing that from happening because of the pandemic. They weren't letting sponsors on site. You know which sites I'm talking about. Just go there. Just go there. So I, I really feel like, you know, I come from a military family. I followed what I consider to be the chain of command in taking this in information to my company, to Pfizer, to the FDA, and they failed. Me, they failed the public. They are responsible for <clears throat> where we are right now. I, I, I feel that um, so strongly. And when I realized, you know, after the emergency use authorization was given and, and that they had not inspected Ventavia, that they chose to go to six other sites, not the one where they received this complaint, that I had to, I had to take it the next step. And through talking through some attorneys, I learned that because of Pfizer's misbranding of their product, because it's not as safe as they said it was, and it's not as effective as they said it was, that I had a false claims act case against them. So in January of 2021, I filed a $1.9 billion lawsuit against Pfizer and their contractor, Ventavia, and another contractor, Icon. And so you filed this lawsuit. Now, people are going to hear that number into the billions, mm -hmm. and they're going to say, what is she up to here? How did that number, how did that number become determined? Who, who came up with the number? Well, that number is actually going to increase, but that $1.9 billion was the original amount of the contract that was negotiated between Pfizer and the U.S. Department of Defense for the purchase of that original um, 100 million dose vaccine. of the vaccine. Okay. So that's where, where that is that? Gotcha. All right. So that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So you file this lawsuit and what happened? Well, it, interestingly, in the type of case that I filed, a, a false claims actor, sometimes you'll hear it referred to as a key TAM action. The, the case immediately, once filed in the court, goes under seal. And the reason it goes under seal is so that the defendants, in this case, Ventavia, Pfizer, and Icon, are not tipped off to an investigation by the Department of Justice. Okay. That original seal is for 60 days. So that took us to March of 2021. So I'm gagged. I can't talk about this case. I can't discuss it with anybody. While I'm watching this vaccination program roll out to now our our children and mandated in our military and for our first responders. And I'm meeting vaccine injured for the first time. And it was so disappointing to know that the U.S. government had an initial 60 days to investigate and to learn in March of 2021 that nothing had been done. Nothing. Still so no in investigation. That 60 days that the, the, so the, lawsuits gets, the lawsuit gets sealed for 60 days so the, the government can investigate, mm -hmm. and, and they didn't? No. So then, then it becomes unsealed? No. What the government did was request a six-month extension, which they were granted. So it's under seal for another six months. I can't talk about it 
I'm waiting while, um, you know, they, they, they're doing whatever. I know they've never been there. They've never been to Ventavia. Any investigation would have been internal. And I know that because of, of the documents that we had to sue the FDA for to be released, um, you know, now and instead of 75 years from now through those documents that were submitted as part of the, the package for their license to the FDA, we know which clinical trial sites have been inspected and Ventavia Research Group is not one of them. So uh, the six months of the seal obviously is ends and, and still <clears throat> what? So that took, what the- that took us to September of 2021. And I, you know, have been and was in constant communication with my attorneys, the weight on my heart, knowing that I, I had this, what I felt like a, was a secret that I couldn't share with the public. I thought, man, this, this is so important. Maybe this would give pause to somebody that's considering vaccinating their child or going in for that booster to know that these clinical trials were run this way. I just, I was angry. And so I I talked to my attorneys and I said, why can I not just talk about the facts surrounding the case without revealing that there was one? And they said to me, Brooke, if you do that, the government is going to come after you. You cannot do that. And I said, well, they're just gonna have to come after me. I cannot bear this anymore. I'm meeting vaccine injured Suzanne, who I listened, um, I listened to your interview. Susanna Newell. Yes. Whom we had on this podcast who uh, underwent life changing health alterations after uh, the shots, after the COVID vaccine. And, and some of us have had nothing at all, but that's not, let's not discount. There's a growing number of people the myocarditis we know about in, in boys, we know about people like Susanna, and there's a growing list of claims uh, of vaccine injury. So you're meeting these people mm-hmm. and you're thinking to yourself. My heart was broken. I, for months, begged somebody just to listen to me, go into this clinical trial site, see what they're doing. There's so many serious adverse events that are not being reported cardiac events, pregnancy, we're finding things at my site that were material to where we are today and all these approvals that were given. And I just, I felt whatever was going to happen, whatever the government was going to do, they were just going to have to do it. I just, I had to come forward. And so in all of this, I'm not, I'm not into politics or very, outdoorsy type people. We don't watch a lot of TV. My kids do have cell phones, but they're monitored very closely. We don't let them do TikTok or Facebook or any of that. But I understood just by when we did happen to flip on the the television that I couldn't take the documents that I had to one news station because I would be discounted by this. Yes. I, I recognize because everyone would think, oh, the, here's the agenda. Yes, yes. I recognize that ecosystem, and I, I thought, okay, why take this to a scientific mind? Let some, let a journal, a medical journal, review the the evidence. And this wasn't my 
these aren't my documents. This isn't just my story. This is Pfizer's, Ventavia, and Icon, their own internal communications. I just brought it forward. I'm kind of just a narrator. I'm showing you through their own documents what's happening. And <clears throat> so that that's that's where we were. Sorry, I have to take a drink. That's okay. You're doing great. Thank you. Thank you. So which medical journal did you choose? I, I took it to the British Medical Journal. And, and I did that because in all the, the years that I've been doing research, I'd only ever read one, one person, one editor, who was calling for transparency in clinical research. And for part of what's submitted to the FDA when they're reviewing uh, a product safety and efficacy, calling for that individual clinical trial data from each patient. And again, remember that's that's the source documents that I'm talking about that's right. collected at the individual site for each patient that's enrolled, 44,000 of them. We need that individual patient data. And the editor, one of the editors at the BMJ was the only one that I'd ever read calling for that. So I sent him an email and we um, started communicating and he put me in touch with a journalist by the name of Paul Thacker. And for a long time, Paul and I went through these documents. There were other employees at Ventavia that were coming forward and cooperating what I was saying. My direct boss, my line manager was fired for bringing up the same concerns that I brought up months ago. So he was interviewing you know, these, these other, um, I guess, whistleblowers. Basically, they're, they're, they're corroborating witnesses, Absolutely. right? I mean, they were corroborating exactly what you had seen. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So for, for months, so we went through this evidence and the, the peer reviewed uh, article was published in the BMJ on November 2nd of 2021. Coincidentally, that was the day that I was invited to Senator Johnson's roundtable of vaccine experts, and and he had um, a panel of, of people that have been injured, not just by Pfizer's product, but other COVID nineteen vaccines as well. And that that is a day that I will tell you that has changed my life forever. And I'm just now at, at this point, I, I the evidence, the injuries, they're undeniable. Um, the narrative is starting to change, shifting finally. I feel that. Uh, I, I see it too. I see it too. I mean, a few flashback two years ago, you weren't allowed to question anything. If you did question something, you were canceled. You were called names. You were uh, people treated you like you were a moron, and and all the rest. I, the insults against people thrown to, at people who didn't want to get the vaccine were hideous. People were called selfish for not wanting the vaccine, all all of these things. And now here we are. And I, I, the narrative is changing. I mean, I I've talked to multiple people who have questions about the way this whole pandemic was handled. And, and certainly the vaccine injured list is growing. Where is the lawsuit now, Brooke? And finally, when I, when I, told my attorneys, I'm not going to keep my mouth shut anymore. The The seal was extended for another six months. Another six months? Another six months, yes. So we had the first 60 days mm-hmm. it's sealed. That's automatic. 
The government applies and gets another six months. Then they got an additional six months? He did, yes. And finally, so, after the British Medical Journal was published and, and there was, you know, a, a little, um, what's the word, I guess, censorship of, of that article. And I was starting to do more interviews and talk about the facts. I never revealed that there was a case. But in January of 2022 of this year, the government declined to intervene in the case. So what does that mean? That, that means that they weren't interested in taking over the action, that they did not want to get involved. And so if the, it, does the lawsuit go anywhere from here? Well, at the point where the government declines to intervene and they had three options, they could intervene and take over the action and, and start to pursue a, a, a civil a case. Uh, possibly a criminal case based on what I brought forward against uh, against mm-hmm. Pfizer and the two other companies Correct. you say stated Icon and and I keep forgetting the name of the one that you were actually Ventavia Ventavia, Ventavia. <laughs> sorry okay. so they so the government could have stepped in and said we'll take it from here and we'll file the lawsuit that was one option the second option would have been to decline to intervene that is that is what they did the third option would have been to dismiss the case. The government has the authority to dismiss my case with prejudice and not allow it to go forward. They chose not to do that. They just chose not to get involved. And that, at that point, allows me, as the person that brought the lawsuit forward on behalf of the United States government and our citizens, that's what this type of, of lawsuit is. I'm bringing this, I'm acting pretty much on behalf of the government. And that allowed me at that point to move forward with the case on my own, still acting in that same capacity, but knowing that the government is not allowing or wanting to get involved. So I refiled the lawsuit against those same three defendants for the same amount, for the same allegations. And all three have motion to dismiss and of course, yes, we have not been allowed to to move forward with discovery yet. The judge wants to be able to make a decision on, um, you know, the the argument of dismissal first. And it's interesting because Pfizer's argument is two things really. One that based on materiality, which is the government knowledge of the fraud and complaint, that. They knew about it, chose to purchase the product anyway, and therefore the case should be dismissed. That's one of Pfizer's arguments. That's weird. Mm-hmm. That that to me is just weird. So in other words, you can dismiss the case by saying, yeah, there was fraud, but we knew about it, and the government purchased it anyway, so no harm, no foul. That's, that's I mean, Pfizer's, that, that's Pfizer's that's, um, defense. The government knew about it because uh, I contacted them. I contacted the FDA. They knew about the fraud and they chose, they chose to purchase the vaccine anyway. They continue to purchase. So you can't, you can't, you can't sue us because it's government. You can't sue. We're not at fault. The government still bought the, the, the vaccines knowing what they knew. And so we, we've nothing to, we're not, this isn't our fault. The government bought it. That that's uh, it's, it's amazing. If people want to follow your case or support you in any way 
or, you know, just have some knowledge, where would you direct them? I, I would say that I would, I would direct them to my Twitter account. It's I am Brooke Jackson. I don't have a website. You know, that, that, that may, that may come. It's been made very apparent from, you know, the, the motions and what's on the docket in my court case that Pfizer is, is keeping a, a very close eye on what I do tweet about. Um, and so I, I, I do stay on there quite a bit and keep people updated on, on the status of the case. Um, but I think it's important for people to know that, you know, this, this is what Pfizer is arguing. Not that they, not that what I'm saying wasn't true, but they didn't have to, um, you know, that, that's another one of their arguments is that the type of contract that was negotiated with the department of defense for the purchase of this product did not require Pfizer to follow any of any law or regulations that governed clinical trial. We have codes of federal regulations that say you can't do many of the things that I outline in the lawsuit. They're saying it, it, it was okay. And are they saying it was okay because this was an emergency uh, under the emergency use? Is that why it's okay? Or why, why, how can they possibly say it was okay if it goes against code of conduct or, you know, because of the type of contract that was negotiated. It wasn't your standard, you know, federal um, acquisition. It was a prototype contract that is typically negotiated with the Department of Defense for the purchase of weapons, bioweaponry. It gets more interesting the more I talk to you, Brooke. And she, by the way, spells her name without an E at the end. So if you're looking for her on Twitter, I am Brooke Jackson. Don't put an E after the, after Brooke. Um, you're brave. Thank you. And I hope something is sustaining you. What is sustaining you? Hope that especially the judge in this case, because it, it is, it's so important. You know, I mean, when you think back to when I filed this January of 2021 um, to, to where we are now, there's, there's so much more information that's coming out on, on its, this product's um, lack of safety and how ineffective it actually is. And it, it's hope. I hope that the judge you know, abides by the oath that he took when when taking uh, his position and and rules on fact and law only. That there's no um, nothing injected into his decision, like there has been. Into, <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> no pun. But into our public health and into our medical journals and into our um, media. You know, there there cannot be any bias there. And that that's what I'm hopeful for. And that hope is for the people that have been injured by this vaccine, because, um, you know, if there is uh, any success from this lawsuit, that's going to a vaccine injured fund. I've said from the very beginning, if, if I do and am successful, that money is going towards what I've seen and when you see somebody that's been injured by these products face-to-face, -face, it will change your life. Yeah, it did mine too, Burke. I met with uh, a handful of them here in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, and I was floored. 
and they do need the money because many of them are spending. One woman told me she had, was out $20,000 worth of treatment, and I nearly fell over, and she said, that's nothing. She said, I'll tell you about people who have spent $120,000 trying to get their health back. And um, so, like I said, you're Thank brave, you. and I appreciate that. And we are going to continue to follow this case really closely here on Sideline Sanity. Folks, uh, again, you can follow her at, at I am Brooke Jackson, no E after Brooke, and see how things are going. This is, thank you. This is really thank important. Thank you for doing yeah, what you're doing you so and, and giving those a voice. Um, it's just a smidgen, but I, I'm one of those that believes that every smidgen adds up and counts. So we'll do, we're doing our part here. Um, and thank you for what you're doing, Brooke. This has been Sideline Sanity. I'm Michelle Tafoya. Be brave. Do good. Follow us at Sideline Sanity and follow her at I am Brooke Jackson. Well, Sideline Sanity, we are very proud to be sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals, and we're joined by Charles Thorngren, the CEO of Legacy Precious Metals. Charles, we are hearing now that this is not transitional inflation. This is not a bump in the road. This inflation is going to be here a while. What, what does that What does that tell you? You know, that's the scary thing. Um, I think you know, economies and, and and such like that. They can deal with small jars. We have a, a unique situation. We had a Fed that waited much too long to react to the situation, calling inflation transitory for a year when everyone knew it wasn't. But more importantly than that, coming out now saying. This is going to be here. This is long term. This is not short term. We're going to have elevated rates for the long term. And, and why that gets really scary is that means the cost of doing business is going to be elevated for years, which means the cost of goods are going to be elevated for years, which means if companies can't make enough money, they will go out of business. This is why we, we hear some of your bigger companies are already talking about layoffs. So. It's a unique situation. The Fed found themselves in a very bad place, and they reacted way too slow. And this is why we're at where we're at. So if I'm an investor, then what's why do I want gold and silver in my portfolio? What what will that do for me? You know, that, that's a great question, and that's a question we get a lot. And, and really what gold and silver do, um, they act as the hedge against the dollar weakness. They act as a hedge against the other markets. And we know that the Dow and, and all of your markets, all your indices are, are, are pulling back, right? That's not the issue. It's not what's already happened. It's what's yet to come. And that's where we, we need to prepare. So depending on who you listen to and, and the research that you do, you know, there are case studies of saying expect to see another 25, 20 to 25% pullback in your equities markets based on interest rates and loans and, and the bond markets they're suffering as well. No one's going out to buy bonds knowing that they're going to be um, an increased return on them in three months. It makes no sense. So that leaves you in a position of what to do with your money and how to protect yourself. This is where gold and silver come in. This is why we say this is a long-term play. You buy it, you forget about it, let it do its, its job. And its job is to go up over time as the dollar gets weaker as the purchasing power gets less, gold and silver increase. It protects that purchasing power. 
And that's the great thing about it. And there's your bottom line and why you need to call Legacy Precious Metals or go download their investor's guide at LegacyPreciousMetals.com. Charles, it's always good to talk to you because these are nerve-wracking times for people. You know, it, it's just the fact of the matter is, as we were told by the, the Fed chair, there's going to be some pain. So if people know that they've got something solid sitting in their investment portfolio, I think they're going to feel a little bit better, right? Absolutely. And, and we, you know, when we look at the actions that have happened just recently, I mean, the Fed has taken a very unique stance and they've done something very um, extraordinary. Three quarters of a basis points raises months in a row. That's one of the largest raises you've ever seen in the Fed through the history of the Fed. And it's not just once. One time is shocking. Here we are on the third month now. And we'll probably do another half a, half a basis point next month or, or later this month, possibly even three quarters of a point. So when you look at that and you say that number is going to grow to where the Fed interest rates will be about 5%, unheard of. That means the interest rate to you and I, if that's what banks pay to borrow money, we're going to see, you know, credit cards will probably be over 28, 30% again. You're going to see home loans coming in 9, 10, possibly even 11%. And it's it's a scary time. And this is why we say, okay, know that it's coming. Don't be afraid. You You now are aware. So now you can protect yourself. And that's what we help people do. Don't be afraid. Prepare. Just prepare yourself. And like I say every day, I trust Legacy Precious Metals when it comes to investing in gold and silver. So go to LegacyPMInvestments.com. LegacyPMInvestments.com. Charles and his group can answer any and all of your questions. Charles, thank you so much. My pleasure as always. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.